Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 23. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got there, when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it were made well. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate, without, ate with hands that were defiled, that, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups, pots, and copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Dr. James White once wrote that nothing, there's nothing wrong with tradition as long as we do not confuse tradition with truth. Soon, as soon as we become more attached to our tradition than we are the truth, we are in very deep trouble. He says that the best tradition is recognized for exactly what it is. One that may help us to better worship or serve God, but which is not an in and of itself the embodiment of truth. He says all traditions must be tested. <clears throat> if there is anything that we as human beings are, are good at, it is making and keeping traditions. We do it all the time in churches. We do it all the time in high schools. Right? And understand, I agree with Dr. James White that traditions can be a very good thing, especially traditions that help us to, to focus our lives and our hearts and our attention on God. Um, like the tradition that, 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 I, that I observed that you witnessed this morning, I make a point to read the text of Scripture that we're looking at at the very outset of, of the sermon. And I do so declaring before and after that what you have heard is the word of the Lord. And the reason why I do that um, is a number of years ago, I was influenced by a preacher and theologian named Don Carson, who does the exact same thing. And I adapted it to my own because of what it communicates. 
First of all, the Apostle Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.13. Right? This right here is my devotion to that end, the, the public reading of Scripture. Secondly, it communicates that I have the very highest reverence for the Word of the living God. Because, because I do. Right? The Word of God is the power to change lives. The Word of God is, is the power to save. And the Word of God is, is precious to me. Third, it communicates that the Word of God takes priority in, in the sermon itself. Lots of preachers spend a lot of time talking before they actually get to the text, and that's fine. But for me, right, I get to it first because the Word of God is the priority to me. And finally, by reading it up front, right, the text of Scripture, it draws a distinction between what God is saying and what I'm saying. And, and I certainly do my best to exposit the word and, 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 and talk about the context and explain the meaning of the text. But, but the words at the, at the outset of the sermon are the ones that are infallible, right? My words, on the other hand, are not. And so that's the reason why I practice this tradition. This is my way of worshiping uh, the living God. It's, it's my way of saying, Lord, I stand under your, your preaching, I mean, under your word and not above it, right? And I think personally, it's a good tradition. Now, if the very next person were to come up here to the pulpit and they were to, to begin to speak and, and don't do things exactly the way that I do, it doesn't mean that they're a heretic, right? It doesn't mean that they're disobedient, and it doesn't even mean that they don't love God as much as I do, right? The fact of the matter is, it's, this is my tradition, and, and, and it's just that, a tradition. It's not the truth of itself. And there are lots of traditions found throughout Christian history that are wonderful and they have their place. Right? They help to draw our attention toward God. They help us to avoid sin and temptation. They help us to serve Him better. But the problem has been, throughout all of history, is a tendency to, um, to, to allow our traditions to actually invade the truth. Our tradition begins to, to take on the status of essential doctrine. And, and in the end, it replaces the, the gospel with, with legalism. And, and what starts off as a good thing, a helpful thing, and something that, you know, that, that, that we should practice actually ends up becoming something that gets in the way of the truth. And, and please understand, when people you know, begin traditions and practice traditions, right, they don't do so hoping that it becomes an obstacle to the gospel. Right? And no one knowingly adopts a, a tradition into their life right, um, because, you know, because it's simply legalistic. In fact, it's just that most people come to faith, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then they learn some traditions, and they adopt these traditions really without thinking about them, uncritically. They actually, you know, they don't test them against the scriptures, and so people simply accept what's taught as essential truth and never examine these things for themselves. A great example of what I'm talking about here is is the beloved English translation of the Bible known as the authorized version or the King James version of the Bible. That Bible has been an indispensable part of, of Christian history. It, it is familiar with people over multiple generations. It's, it, it's poetic style and the, co the cadence of, of the text is beautiful. And, and a lot of people have memorized lots of scripture out of the King James Version, so they're attached to it. And, and those who read and study and teach from the King James Version of the Bible, you know, they uphold a wonderful, long-standing tradition in the Western world. But please understand, at the end of the day, it's just that. It's a tradition. But the problem is there are many people who have elevated this tradition to the level of essential doctrine. 
In fact, there are people who will go so far to say that the King James Version of the Bible is God's re-inspired word. So that where the King James Version obviously disagrees with, um, with the original Greek and the original Hebrew, it's thought that the King James Version is correct and the, and, and the other original languages are in error. And many people believe that if you don't read the King James Version of the Bible, you're not reading the Bible. And other people believe that if, you don't, if your church uses a different Bible besides the King James Version, then you go to an apostate church. And some will even say, go so far to say, is if you don't have just the King James Version of the Bible, you're not even saved. Right. That's how serious this can be. That's legalism. And, and, and it's not the truth. That's, that's allowing traditions to get in the way of the truth. Because the fact is, just so you know, there's not one inspired English version of the Bible. There are translations of the inspired works that, that, are, that are from the Greek and the Hebrew. And, and, and some English translations are certainly better than others, but there's no one perfect English version of the Bible. An, another tradition that divides churches and gets all people worked up and angry and frustrated and mad at each other is the variety of views on eschatology or what is known as the end times. Did you know that there are churches who will deny you membership to the church? They won't even baptize you if you don't agree with their exact way that they think that the end times are going to come about. And, and some people will even say, you're not even a Christian if you don't hold to their view on things like the millennium or whether or not you know, the rapture of the church is a real thing. But what most people don't realize is the positions that they hold on that particular issue right, actually were handed down to them by what? Their traditions, and most of their traditions, they've never, they don't even know what the origins of those traditions are or what the details of those traditions are. They either grew up hearing about it from grandma or the church that they attend teach it or their favorite preacher and theologian on YouTube, because there's a lot of those, um, talks about it all the time. And they believe what, what they believe is, is the essential you know, doctrinal truth not even realizing that their beliefs are rooted in a more complicated system of interpretation of the Bible. That they're, they're rooted in two streams of interpretation, whether it is, it's called dispensationalism or covenant theology. And, and what is more, they don't realize is, is both of these, these streams of theology, both of these traditions, they have their own history. And, and they both appeal to the scriptures for support, and they both have strengths and weaknesses, and they both have a number of varieties to them. And each one of them has, has position, um, has strong support, you know, from different people in the church. And each one of them has, is nuanced and makes their arguments from, from the scriptures, which means ultimately something like that is, is a complex issue that requires careful study of the scriptures and understanding that it's not a salvation issue. But many denominations make it a salvation issue or at least, you know, a church membership issue. Something that, that was not essentially turned into a test of, of orthodoxy. By the way, our statement of faith, um, which if you want to see it's on the back table, uh, in Article 10, uh, titled Last Things, addresses that particular issue this way. It says, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end according to his promise. Jesus... Jesus will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous and their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. 
So understand, we don't care if you're a classical dispensationalist or a 1689 federalist. And I know you probably don't know what that is. We don't care if you're mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib, or no-trib. We don't, we don't care if, if you're pre-mill, post-mill, or a-mill. Right? None of those positions, and I want you to hear me on this, none of those theological positions are salvation issues. Now, do I personally believe that some of those things you know, have more weight than others? I absolutely do. But am I willing to impose my non-essential views on you? No, not at all. We can never allow our traditions to become a legalistic standard by which we're judging each other. And the church has been doing this for years and years and years. The early church um, thought that the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament was, was inspired over the original Hebrew text. And then the Latin Vulgate was considered to be the only true word of God and then the King James Version. And many churches believe that you can't even have instruments during worship. They believe that if you have instruments, they're not worshiping God. And other people, Charles knows some of them, that say that if you don't have, any, if you have anything else besides a piano, you're, you've got devil music going on, right? right? Other churches think that women can't wear makeup and have to wear dresses all the time, and, and the list goes on and on and on and on. But all traditions, all traditions, no matter how good they may be, no matter how helpful they might seem to be, Right? All traditions must be examined in the light of Scripture because many traditions for us become the absolute truth. And that is what we're going to see here in this text. We're going to see this, what happens when you take tradition and you replace it with the truth. So turn to me with me really quick to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 53. And it says, And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret and moored on the shore. Now, for context, you need to remember that, that this is a whole new world in this moment for the apostles. They had, they, they had, Jesus had sent them across the lake in a boat after he fed 5,000 people. Really, he fed like 15,000 people, really with basically a Lunchable, right? A couple of pieces of bread and some fish. Right? And, and then so he makes them go, go get in the boat and go across the lake, right? And they get into this light threatening storm, right? And, and, and Jesus isn't with them like they think he were before. And so they're really struggling. But then Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And when he gets there, they're afraid, they're terrified. But he announces, Don't be afraid. I'm here with you. And then he says that he says the words, I am, right? He basically announces that he's the great I am. And he gets in the boat and then immediately the storm stops. And as Matthew says, they worship him and say, you are the son of God. So finally, after all the time they spent together, they're beginning to see who Jesus really is. And now their boat has landed in an area near Capernaum. And it says, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, and, or countryside, he laid the sick in the marketplace and implored them that they might um, touch even the fringe of his garment. As, and as many as touched it were made well. And so the story about Jesus and his, his popularity increasing just continues. And people hear about, about him and even I've been eyewitnesses to his miracles. And what do they do? They're bringing every person they can find who's sick or crippled and infirmed because they know for a fact that Jesus can heal them. I mean, they're so, they're so convinced. They know that even if they just touch the edge of his garments, that they'll be made well. But then a familiar group of people show up in the story. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. 
It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So again, we encounter these religious leaders um, and, and, and you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, and we notice you know, that these scribes themselves are from Jerusalem, which, which again means that this is... This isn't just a group of people. This is an official delegation that was sent from Jerusalem to check out what was going on. Jesus had obviously been growing in fame and influence, and they wanted to check up on him because they knew that he was going to be a threat to their political power. Right? And if you remember, this isn't the first time that Jesus had had a run-in with these guys. In fact, he's had, he had, Mark tells us about six times when, when he gets in conflict with them, beginning in chapter 2. If you remember the story where Jesus heals the paralytic man, uh, some guys bring their friend on a bed. They, they come to the house where Jesus is, is. They can't get in the house. What do they do? They climb up on Peter's house. They tear the roof off the place and they drop, they lower this man down in front of Jesus. And it says he saw their faith and then he says something nobody expected for him to say. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes in the room suddenly thought to themselves, wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. This guy's blaspheming. And Jesus, showing his omniscience, knowing what they thought, said to them, So you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And the guy left, proving that Jesus had that power. Then Jesus you know, goes out, and what does he do next? He calls to himself the worst of the worst kind of sinner named Matthew, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And to make matters worse, he goes to, to Matthew's house, Levi's house is another name for him. They go to his house, and he's having dinner with who else? More sinners and more tax collectors. And the Pharisees are like, what are you doing? You're a religious man, and you're hanging around with these, these defiled, filthy people. You can't be doing this. And Jesus says to them, um, actually, I didn't, you know, a doc, the well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I didn't come to save the righteous or really the self-righteous. I came to save sinners. And then after that, notice Jesus, and they, they see that Jesus and his disciples aren't following their, their weekly fast, the traditions that they're keeping of, of fasting twice a week. And then Jesus, Jesus is like, um, your traditions, your man-made traditions in the gospel are incompatible. That's why he said that you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. And then the Pharisees notice that his disciples are walking along, picking heads of grain and eating them. I mean, you got to remember where they're, where they're at. Like, there isn't like a little 7-Eleven on every corner, right? And if you want, you know, if you're hungry, there's, you can't go to the store and get like a Tiger Milk bar or something like that. They went out and they were picking grain as they walked along. And, and, and the Pharisees thought, you know, considered this to be harvesting or working, right? And, and Jesus says to them, your man-made rules are not the law. And he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, right? Which, and, and he says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And right after that, this teaching, right? Jesus is in, the, is in the synagogue on the Sabbath and a man with a withered hand shows up. And everybody's looking at him going, what's he going to do now? Is he going to heal him? Because if he does, he's breaking the law. And Jesus brings the guy forward and, and, and uh, tells him to stretch out his hand and heals him. And so from that moment on, they believed that he was a Sabbath breaker and wanted to kill him. And then finally, an official delegation of Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem came to him. And, and, and they saw him, they witnessed him, cast out a demon of a man who was, who was uh, blind and mute. And these men, rather than giving glory to God and saying... 
you know, saying, you, you know what, you're, you've done a great work here. They say, actually, you're doing it because you're demon-possessed. And Jesus, in that moment, sternly warns them that their hard hearts are about to cause them to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And that's the last we see of the Pharisees in the story for quite a little bit. But right after this encounter, Jesus' own family, they come to Capernaum from Nazareth. And the reason why they come is they want to take him by force and take him home because they thought he lost his mind. They done thought his cheese slipped off the cracker, right? I mean, he, they thought he was crazy for what he was doing, right? And, and, and this right here, the, the Pharisees and what they did and what his family did, this all points to a theological idea that Jesus is driving at. It's the idea of outsiders and insiders, those people that are outside the kingdom and people that are inside the kingdom. People that are non-believers and people that are believers. Did you know there's only two types of people? People who believe the truth and people who don't. And the difference between those people, believers and non-believers, as we discovered, is not their intelligence level. It has nothing to do with how smart you are. It has nothing to do with your stature. It doesn't have to do with your religious affiliation or how religious you are. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the, your exposure to the evidence either, as we've seen over and over again in, in, in the text. And it doesn't have anything to do with your family either. Jesus' own family in that moment didn't believe in him. The difference is, is the condition of a person's heart. Those people who don't believe have a hard heart. And those who do believe have a changed heart. Jesus immediately then it illustrates that point by teaching several parables, he teaches the parable of the sower, which is a picture of four different heart conditions, three of which resulting in unbelief, and then one other one resulting in a changed heart that led to belief. And then he teaches the, the parable about the lamp and the growing seed and the mustard seed. And all of these things point to the overarching doctrinal theme that Mark has been, been developing for us, which is the fact that God is completely sovereign over everything, including salvation. God is sovereign over salvation because only God can change a person's hearts. Only God can make the seed of the word of God grow. Salvation is 100% the work of the Lord. And so with all of those things in mind, the difference between the believers and unbelievers and the sovereignty of God and Jesus' previous encounters with the Pharisees, who are still, by the way, looking for a way to kill him, with all of that as a backdrop, we see these men appear back in the story. And it says, For they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they, there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and, and dining couches. So this is the point in the story we need to kind of picture this. So here these powerful political men are. Right? That they've got lots of political muscle. They're, you know, they're politically dangerous. The law is with them. And they've come back now to, again, confront Jesus. They've, they've come back to, to get in his face, basically. And you've got to remember, they've been looking for a way to kill him. They've looking for an excuse to kill him. And, and, and also, in these last six encounters, right, they've tried to confront Jesus, and Jesus has put them in their place. So they've lost the first six rounds. And so these powerful men come back, you know, and, and they want to they confront him. And how do they come back at him? How do they, they confront him? What is their, what is their, their charge of, of what he's doing wrong? 
well, well, your disciples, they don't even wash their hands when they eat. That's, that's the big thing. That's how they come back at him. That's the controversy that they want to stir up. That's the dirt that they, that, that they, they can find on Jesus. Yeah, you think you're such a hot shot um, teacher. You think that you're such a man of God. But guess what? Your disciples don't even wash their hands. Right? Some Messiah you are. Never mind all the miracles you know, that you've done with thousands of eyewitnesses. And never mind the fact that, 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 that we saw you heal a bunch of people. Or the fact that you're, the other witnesses say that you raised somebody from the dead and walked on water. You can't possibly be the Messiah. You can't, you know, your disciples don't even wash their hands before they eat. I mean, we're the real people of God because we observe these rituals and wash our hands. Sound ridiculous? Of course it is. But that's legalism for you. And we hear it all the time. Can't be a Christian unless you read the King James Version of the Bible. Certainly can't be a Christian if you occasionally have a glass of wine with dinner. Can't be a Christian if you think that the church in Israel is the same thing. Oh, no, you can't be a Christian and get a tattoo. Can't be a Christian and, you know, in your church if somebody's got a, is playing a guitar. Can't be a Christian if you're not in favor of social justice and intersectionality, which, by the way, is the new legalism today. The new legalism says that Jesus came to the earth not so much to save sinners, but to destroy oppressive hierarchies and bring about income equality and force people to repent of their, their privilege. That's the new legalism. And I wish that I was making that up, but I'm not. That's how ridiculous legalism is. It takes a tradition and it elevates it to divine revelation. Let me say that again. Legalism is where you, where you take a tradition and elevate it to divine revelation. And, and, and that right there is their angle. They were seriously upset about his disciples not washing their hands. I mean, we think of that, we look at them and go, that's just stupid. But they were seriously upset about this because they believed that that tradition itself was handed down from God. Notice what it says. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Notice that they're grounding their argument in the tradition of the elders. Right? See, there was an oral tradition that was created over time by observant Jews to help them keep the law. Because the law of Moses, you know, though specific about a lot of things, wasn't specific about every you know, variable in life. And the Jews, being a covenant people, they knew that if they wanted to be blessed and they wanted to stay in the land, it was contingent upon them keeping their part of the covenant, which was obedience to the law. And at that time, they believed that the only way that the Messiah would come and, and, and drive out the Roman army and restore their country back to a sovereign nation was for them to perfectly keep the law. So they begin to create all these rules as a hedge around the law, or as we call them, guardrails. For instance, the Bible, it, Paul tells us in Ephesians, right, to not be drunk, that drunkenness is a sin. And so a lot of people will say, well, a great safeguard to make sure you never get drunk is you just never drink, right? That's a guardrail. Right? And for the Jews, the Bible said, do not work, right? In fact, the punishment for breaking the Sabbath was, was death. And, and so, as we talked about before, the, the Jews sought to define work and developed this complicated list of, of things to do that constituted work. And, and it made things like picking heads of grain, you know, considered harvesting, and, and, and rubbing it in your hands like this, threshing. And it made healing people on the Sabbath illegal in their eyes. 
And it's the same with cleanliness. They took the ceremonial washing rules for priests and made it normative for everybody else in, in, in Israel. Notice he says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly or thoroughly, holding to the traditions of the elders. This was a rule for them. This was the law for them. And, and, and there's still more to that. And, and he says, and when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Or in other words, when they go to the marketplace or a common area with other people, especially where Gentiles were, they would actually then go home and wash their hands before they, before they ate. It's kind of like how, how when we get in con- have contact with people who don't know, what do we do? We get the san- hand sanitizer out. Some of you guys probably have hand sanitizer in your pockets, right? Especially when you go to shake someone's hand, right? You, you'll shake their hand and you're like, how are you doing? And they're like, terrible. I've got this horrible cold. And you're like, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Now, it says that they washed their hands when they went to town. And as many as, as and there were many other traditions they observed, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. In other words, they did the dishes and, and, and they, they wiped down the seats and made sure that everything was clean and, and sanitary. And, and what I want you to notice is the things that they do in and of themselves, actually they're good things. I mean, hear me on this. It's good for you to wash your hands before you eat, right? It's just kind of common sense. It's good that you wash your hands when you go to town. I mean, when you go to Walmart, right, you encounter lots of different kinds of people. Some of those people, you know, are clean, and, and some of them not so much, right? And, and some of the people you run into are healthy and other people are, are not so healthy, hacking and coughing, right? And, and they're touching everything. They're touching the doors. They're touching the stuff on the shelves and putting it back, right? And all the people who touched the cart before you, you like, you go grab that cart. You don't know the hundred people who just touched it before you did, right? And so, yes, it's good for you to wash your hands before you eat, right? When you get back from town, Right? And please understand, right? do the dishes. Right? Don't eat off of a dirty plate. Don't, don't cook with a dirty skillet. Don't, don't use that fork that has that, that, that stuck-on spot of spaghetti sauce on there. Okay? I know it's tempting. You can just scrape. Just don't do that. Right? And then also, let me add to that. Right? When you sneeze, wash your hands. Right? When you go to the bathroom, wash your hands. And, and don't shake hands with people who are sick. Right? That's a good rule, right? Or, or when someone's sick and you know they're sick, in fact, just encourage them. Stay home. We'll pray for you. You can listen to the sermon on SoundCloud. All right? we, we love you, but stay home. And so understand the rules themselves, these traditions are actually good things, and they achieve good things, and, and, and worthwhile things. But the problem is, just like the Sabbath rules, these man-made rules and traditions became elevated to the status of divine, God-inspired revelation on par with Scripture. They believed that washing your hands was as much of a, a command is not coveting. They believe that your status before God was connected to your observance of, of those man-made rules. That's legalism. They believe that tradition is the same thing as divine truth. Right. We see that all the time in the church as well. In fact, the most conspicuous example of this is, is the Roman Catholic Church. They believe in divine authority, right? And they think that the divine authority is three things. Scripture, 
the traditions of the church and the magisterium or, or the pope. They believed that all three things are equal and that's why the, the Catholic religion became legalistic, right? And it requires a lot of stuff. Mass attendance, confirmation, confession, sacraments, penance, on and on and on and on. Because over time, the gospel became squeezed out by what? Tradition. That's why the Reformation was centered on the authority of the Word of God. Not man-made rules, right? Not, not traditions, not anything else, but what, what's, the, what's the cry? Sola Scriptura. That's the model from the Re- Reformation. Scripture alone. That Scripture alone is the source of infallible truth and doctrine. And anything, and any rule or tradition that is not itself originating from the Scripture is just that. It's a tradition. And it's itself not a truth. Even though it might point us to the truth... It might even help us to set our minds on the truth. It might even, even you know, help us to, to, to get a better understanding of the truth, but it's not the truth itself. And that's, that's what they did here. They elevated their man-made traditions to the status of divine truth. And then Jesus turns and calls them out on it. He said to them, Well, or rightly, did Isaiah prophecy of you hypocrites, as is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, there are several things I want to draw your attention to here. The first of which um, is to notice how Jesus deals with their accusations. He doesn't argue with them. Right? He doesn't argue with them. In fact, he could, have, he could have said, well, you know what? These guys have been so busy, like they haven't had a chance to eat, and they're going to eat whenever they can. Like they're so busy, we've been so busy, like we don't even eat all the time. The scriptures talked about that. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't even deal with the issue of washing at all. Instead, he does what every good theologian and what every believer should always do. He goes right to the word of God. He doesn't argue about the merits of their tradition. He goes right to the scriptures and quotes from Isaiah 29, 13. And he said, well, did Isaiah prophecy about you hypocrites? Right? And this word hypocrite literally means play actor. It means pretender. It has this idea. That the root of the idea means like putting on a mask. And so he, he comes right out at them and he basically says, you're just a pretender. You're trying to lead everyone to believe that you love God and that you're righteous and you're following him, but you're nothing but a phony. He says that you're a pretender who honors God with your lips. I mean, you can talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. And, 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 and the reason for that is, is your heart is far from God, which really is the issue. They have hard hearts. They pretend that they're believers, but their hearts are unchanged, which, is, which, which means that they're false believers. Jesus accuses them essentially of making a false profession, a false confession. They say one thing, right, but their hearts say something else. They claim to be of God, but their hearts are hard as stone. And remember, Jesus, his parables pointed to this. There are two classes of people, believers and unbelievers, and the difference between them is the condition of their hearts. And these men are hard-hearted unbelievers pretending to be following God. They're they're classic hypocrites. And their false confession leads to what? False worship. Notice he says, in vain do they worship me. In other words, you might sing all the songs and lift your hands up really high and get all emotional by the music. And you might act like that you're living for God and you might even think that you're serving Him, but you worship. If, if you're a false believer, you worship in vain. 
It's false worship. And the things that you do for God are meaningless. And this really is so important for the American church today because the church is full of, of people who engage in false worship of God. They've been told over and over again, if you'll just pray this little prayer here, or if you'll come forward at this, at this revival meeting, that you're saved, guaranteed, no matter what happens, regardless of what happens in your life. There are many people who, who come to church with unchanged hearts, who love the world and live like demons Monday through Saturday, and then come to church on Sunday and offer false worship to God. The fact is, it doesn't matter if you go to church every week. It doesn't matter if you listen to Christian radio and you're driving down the road with your hands in the air, people looking at you like you're crazy. It doesn't matter that, that, that you, you like and you share every Christian post on social media. It doesn't matter that, that you help around the church or love your neighbor. If your heart isn't changed, if you're not born again, then you're not a believer and you worship God in vain. Remember, Jesus didn't come to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. But if your heart changes, your behavior will automatically change as a byproduct of the fruit of your salvation. And, and that's, that was the Pharisees. Their whole life was religion. Think about it. These guys, their whole existence was defined by Judaism and keeping the law. Right? They're the ones who had access to the books of the law. They're the ones who were in control of the temple. They're the ones that, that, were, that, that did all the sacrifices. And for all their religious posturing and traditions and rules, their hearts were still unchanged. And Jesus calls them hypocrites and says, you worship in vain. And then he gets to the heart of the matter and he says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You've been teaching a biblical truth as biblical truth, the commandments of men. Not only... Are they false converts? Not only do they give false worship, but they engage in and teach false doctrine. By the way, false doctrine always leads to false conversion, which leads to false worship. But on the other hand, true doctrine leads to true conversion, which leads to true worship. Which, by the way, is why we repeatedly say all the time, theology matters. True doctrine leads to life. False doctrine leads to death. And Jesus confronts them promoting this false doctrine. And he says, you leave the commandment of God and, and hold on to the tradition of men. You set aside what the scriptures actually are teaching and you elevate your traditions to, to the word of God. And, and then like any good Bible expositor, Jesus doesn't just tell them that. He actually backs up his claim with the word of God. And he gives them a concrete example of exactly how, how they use the word of God to overrule, I mean, how they use their traditions to overrule the, rule of God, the word of God. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, which by the way is the fifth commandment in Exodus 20, 12. And whoever reviles father and mother might, must surely die, which is Exodus 21, 17. So in other words, honoring your parents is a non-negotiable command of God. And those who, do, who, who don't honor their mother and father deserve the death penalty. And that's how serious this commandment was. And, and, and it was right from the word of God. But then he says, but you say if a man tells his mother, his father or his mother, whatever you would have, whatever you gain from me is Corban, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So let me explain kind of how this works. 
This is a tradition that arose in Judaism that basically said you can declare all your stuff as God's. God, all I have belongs to you. Like we as Christians like to say stuff like that, right? All I have belongs to you, right? And, and it really was a sign of devotion. But it becomes this loophole, right? Because people could, could, according to this tradition, declare, all I have, Lord, is yours, but still keep it and not actually give it to him. And, and they could still use it for their own gain and their own use. And then the Jews, using this tradition, they took advantage of it. So like mom and dad, you know, fall into hard times and they come to them and say, yeah, we, we need some help with like the house payment or we need, we need some food or we need, we need some help around the, the ranch because we're about to go bankrupt. Under the law of Moses, they were obligated to, to help their parents, to honor them, to take care of them. But, but now with this tradition, they're like, well, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you now. According to the tradition, you know, um, I already set aside everything I have for God. And guess what? It wouldn't be right for me to take what is God's and, and give it to you. You see how that, how that works? And Jesus said, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. They use and, and made their man-made traditions to undo the, the, the commandment of God. And then, then he says, and many such things you do. And so what he's saying is you consistently do this. You use your traditions to get in the way of God's, God's word, like the Sabbath law and, and, and doing you know, the Sabbath. These men right, were not promoting a true life-saving faith in God. They were prom promoting a suffocating legalism. And, and the thing that, that is that they, they really believed, they thought that, that, that because they kept those traditions, they were right with God. And they would look down their self-righteous noses at their disciples who didn't measure up. And again, we see this all the time, especially in the church. And we're going to see more of that as people, as we lose, as churches lose a hold on the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture. And these men, again, thought they were right with God because of what they, what they do, which is again, legalism. But with that, I just want to take a quick moment and contrast their approach to God with what we saw when Jesus and his apostles first came ashore. So looking back at chapter 6, at verse 54, it says, And when they got out of the boats, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch they might even touch the fringe of his garment, and many, as many, and as many as touched it were made well. These people didn't come to Jesus professing their goodness. They didn't come professing their righteousness or their deservedness or their ability to keep the law. They came to Jesus desperately seeking to be healed. They searched for him for wherever he went and wherever he was, and. and and, and all they had to bring with them was not their religious traditions or their good deeds. All they had to bring with them was their faith in him that he could make them well. That's all they had. And that is the picture of the gospel. That is, that's, as the hymn writer says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. Then they, they were broken and they were desperate and they believed that Jesus could heal them and and, and, and care, and they came far and wide by faith to be with him so that he could heal them. And that's the picture right there then of the gospel. You see, it's not the rules that you keep. 
It's not about the Bible version that you read. It's not about your, your eschatology. It's not about your att- church attendance, though you should attend church. It's not about your giving, though you should give. It's not about how much you serve, though you should serve. And it's certainly not about the traditions you hold, though you should have traditions. It's about coming to Christ broken with nothing to offer him except your faith. It's about coming to him with a changed heart and doing what Christ said to do. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and turn from your sin and put your hope and your trust completely on Christ alone. That is the contrast we see here in the text. The Pharisees thought that they were right with God because of their traditions and their ability to keep the law. These people came and and were healed simply because they came to Jesus believing and trusting that he could heal them and he healed them. And that's the offer today for anyone who has not actually been changed. For those who have not actually believed, come to Christ now. Submit to your heart, you know, to Christ now. Right? Don't make a vain profession and simply, you know, want God to simply bless your life and make you rich. Don't make a vain profession because you simply want, want, want God to make you feel better about yourself. You come to him understanding that you're a broken sinner And you're totally and completely unable to make yourself right with God, understanding that you have no hope except Jesus Christ himself. You can't save yourself. Religion can't save you. Philosophy can't save you. Grandma's faith can't save you. Science and technology can't save you. The only thing that can save you is to put your hope and all of your trust and all your faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to the earth and lived the life that you couldn't live and died on the cross to pay a penalty you couldn't pay, to endure the wrath of God that you couldn't endure and to give you a righteousness that you couldn't earn. And he died in your place, was buried, and three days later was resurrected, proving that he is who he, who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And as such, he can do what he promised to do, which is to save you from your sins and the wrath of God. And then he ascended into heaven where he is right now interceding at the right hand of the Father for those who trust in Him. And He sent God the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of those who believe in Him to lead them and guide them and keep them and to assure them that they belong to Him. And all those who, who do that and all that you have to do to receive that and have complete forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with Jesus is to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus came saying, the time is now, the kingdom is here, repent and believe the gospel. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And if you've not come to Jesus, then come now. As Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Trust in him today. As we talked about before, if you come to him in faith, he will not despise you. He will not turn you away. He will receive you and forgive you. And if you're ready to do that, then come see me after the service or one of the deacons or even Pastor Charles. He'd love to talk to you about how to put your faith in Christ. Now, I believe that most of us are believers. And for those of you who have been saved, understand traditions are good things. But sometimes you need to put aside your tradition And put aside your favorite YouTube or radio preacher and and what they're teaching and go to yourself to the word of God and study and learn the doctrines of your faith. I'm not saying that you can't believe those things or that you can't hold on to those things. I'm saying that you need to dig in and test all these things by the scriptures. 
Don't just know what you believe, know why it is that you believe them. We're called to have a childlike faith, which means trust in God the way children trust their parents. But we're not called to have a childish faith or an, an ignorant faith. We're called, the Bible says, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and of the foundational, essential doctrines of the faith. We're called to grow towards spiritual maturity. And the way that we do that is to grow in our understanding of what God's Word says so that we can do what He's calling us to do, test all these things and not let our personal preferences get in the way and divide us so that we can do what God's calling every single one of us to do, which is to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ with grace and truth. So come to Jesus and then come to his word and test all these things and show yourself as approved as a worker. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.